This is East Screen, West Screen with Paul and Kevin, where if films were food, they'd be full of it. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of East Screen, West Screen. This is episode 42, and it is Wednesday, September 29th, 2010. I am Paul Fox, and joining me from somewhere in his secret abode in the Fragrant Harbor is my friend and cohort, Mr. Kevin Ma. The Golden Rock reporting from my rock cave, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Is it like the Bat Cave, only with a lot more rocks? Yes, and it's also 25 stories above ground, so that really isn't a cave. Sweet. Well, sir, you were on vacation. Uh, not much as a vacation as a, than, um, I don't know, a quick, a quick trip back and forth to the Pacific, right. I would say. A jaunt yes. back to and, the States, as the uh, people in elite circles might call it. <laughs> yeah, I uh, spent a few days uh, back in the San Francisco Bay Area for my brother's wedding. Uh, congratulations to him again. Um, yeah, so I went back and went back for the weekend, and I came right back to work. And did you did you do anything exciting while you were there besides the wedding? Because weddings I, typically can be a dull thing. Oh uh, well, I, I, I no, I mean, from, if I'm saying public, you know, the wedding was very good and it was it was a very joyous occasion. I'm very happy for my brother. Um, other than that, um, I also visited um, a couple of stores, checked out some Blu-rays, uh, looked at some uh, accessories, um, went to a flea market across the bay and uh, bought some Blu-rays. Don't ask them how they got them, but it was uh, cheaper than the store price uh, by a lot. So, um, yeah, all in all, it was uh, for, for its length. It was a good trip. All right. Any uh, any jet lag on the time spent there or the time coming back? Oh, definitely jet lag when I went over there. Um, you know, I woke up in the middle of the night and couldn't go back to sleep. But uh, no, no jet lag when I came back here because I, I just kind of, I, I landed uh, six in the morning and I just went straight to work and I survived through the day and uh, I went back to our normal uh, schedule almost right away. Oh. You're such a yeah, diligent worker. Uh, well, they pay me enough to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are not here to talk about vacations. We are here to talk about movies. This is a show where we talk about films from Hong Kong to Hollywood and sometimes other stuff in between. And this week we've got two films to talk about. Um, before we get into our East Screen film for the week, though, let's talk about some news. <laughs> All right, so our first bit of news this week, um, Hong Kong has selected two films to head to the Oscars as Oscar nominees, Uh, this story coming from Film Biz Asia, and the two films are Echoes of the Rainbow, 
uh, by Alex Law, and the mainland China film Aftershock uh, by Feng Xiaogang. So these were somewhat heavy hitters, uh, considering the films we've had so far this year. Uh, Echoes of the Rainbow got talked about quite a bit because of the awards it's it's won, and Aftershock in terms of the uh, revenues that it's generated in the mainland. So what do you think, Kevin? Either of these have a shot? Um, I would say that no. Um, I mean, Aftershock, I think, depends on what the what kind of ta- uh, what kind of mood the voters are in. Um, it also depends, of, of course, uh, what the other nations uh, submit. Um, I think it might have a very, very small sh- uh, shot, um, even though I wouldn't agree with it. Um, Echoes of the Rainbow, forget it, there's uh, no chance. Um, although I think um, their choice isn't a surprise at all, and I think it's a fairly decent one, considering um, what was released in the past year. Um, what do you think, Paul? I mean, uh, I don't find them to be surprising. Well, I still haven't been out to see Aftershock as yet. Um, Echoes of the Rainbow, as we, we talked about this uh, some episodes back, wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I didn't care for it all that much. Um, I think mm. that, you know, I, I, I can understand it being a selection because it's gotten some notoriety, but I don't think it has a, a big chance of taking home an Oscar. Uh, the, the article does mention that uh, some of the other shortlisted films include Zhang Yimou's, um Under the Hawthorne Tree, which we'll, we've got some other news about in j- just a bit, and Ip Man Too, uh, as well as All About Love, which I think was one on, on our last show we talked about that, or maybe the show just before that. Um, so Ip Man Too, what do you, <laughs> do you think this is uh, Oscar-worthy? <laughs> I, I think the only reason that it, it made the shortlist is because Gordon Chan didn't have a movie this year. Um, I always joke that it, it's kind of proven time and time again uh, from the Painted Skin nomination and um, yeah, that that a Gordon Chan movie always makes at least a shortlist um, of some kind of awards because Gordon Chan is a very respected, uh, well-respected figure in the Hong Kong film circle. He's also, uh, I believe, the head of the uh, Directors Association uh, of Hong Kong. So um, whenever the, you know, Paint His Skin getting nominated for seven awards and its director being the head of the, the Directors Association, I would say that there is no, there is some kind of, you know, I, I'd be lying if I don't suspect some kind of connection there. And same for... Um, the, the selection of these Oscar films. Um, Hong Kong has had a history of making very strange choices, uh, like as a paint the skin, um, Prince of Tears, which is really a, a film about Taiwan. Um, that was last year's pick. So uh, this, I'm just glad that they finally picked a movie that seems more like a, you know, that makes it seem appear that these people uh, actually have a brain on their heads. Mm. Um, but also we got to look at the you know as always we got to look at the the competition we got here. Um, this year, uh, Thailand is submitting uh, Uncle Boomy, who can recall his past lives, which won this year's Palm Door at the Cannes Film Festival. Uh, Japan is submitting uh, Confessions, uh, a very very good film that I saw um, on a plane a few weeks ago, and it's, it's uh, really easily one of the best films of the year. Um, even though that film is kind of a little it's a risky choice because it's kind of a MTV postmodern style film that the, the, the more traditional voters might not dig. Um, of course, you got um, 
the the, the usual European films. Um, nothing really jumps out at me at the moment. Uh, I see Eastern Plays, which I believe was in one of the major uh, film festivals this past year. Also, Mexico is um, submitting a Beautiful by uh, uh, Alejandro Gonzalez Iranitu, who uh, directed Babel and uh, Morris Peros and 21 Grams. Uh, his film hasn't gotten, uh, hasn't gotten a distribution deal in America yet, but it's already gaining some really strong buzz. So I won't be surprised if a strong filmmaker like him, his film would um, being the in the final race, so I guess uh, it all depends on the final competition. What the other films are like, um, but I think we both agree that Echoes of the Rainbow um, is a I think it's an okay choice, but and it's an understandable choice considering where it's coming from and the, and, and the pedigree he has. But um, yeah, I think neither of us uh, would expect it to be in the final list. All right, let's move on to our second bit of news. Uh, as mentioned, uh, Hawthorne Tree. A new film coming from uh, China. It hasn't opened yet here in Hong Kong. I think it's opening in November. Um, yes. But apparently it's not opened very strongly in China. It's only sort of gotten a lukewarm reception. According to the post over on Film Biz Asia, they said uh, it's not uh, not having a spectacular release. It opened on September 15th, and it has made approximately renminbi $45 million. Uh, by Sunday night. So, I don't know. It, uh, from what I've seen of the trailer for this film, I'm I'm kind of excited to see it, but in part, uh, it's because I'm teaching a unit this semester about this period in China, you know, you know t- taking place uh, somewhat during the Cultural Revolution period and whatnot. So I'm going to try and get some of my students to go out and, and watch it as well. Um but what do you think about this? Do you have you heard any buzz on this, Kevin? Why is it? Why do you think it's not doing so well? Well, um, just kind of a return to a more intimate style filmmaking for Zhang Yimou. Um, again, this 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 fairly but not spectacularly term that um, Film Biz Asia is using is uh, in comparison to uh, Zhang Yimou's uh, track record. Uh, you got Hero. You got. Um, uh, Christopher Golden Flower got House of Flying Daggers, where we ha- which have big Asian stars uh, in those films. Even um, even a simple noodle story, I guess now it's called Woman, a Gun, and a Noodle Shop or something. Uh, even that one had some major domestic Chinese stars that that appealed to the public, and um, that is why they had huge openings and they did very big business. But this time, uh, Zhang Yimou is apparently using a Japanese doll. Uh, I'm sorry, that's what the actress looks like. And uh, and uh, and uh, and both very young actors who are not very well known and um, a very very intimate small love story. Uh, it says on the poster, it is the cleanest love story in history. Um, so it's not one of those big opening. You know, it's not one of those big blockbusters. Uh, Forty five million RMB isn't ain't nothing. Uh, I tell you that. Um, even um, Lost on Journey, um, which is this year's surprise comedy hit, I mean, that one made on a low budget with Wong Bao Chang um, and a Hong Kong filmmaker, uh, Raymond Yip, Yip Weiman, um, that one made 45 million RMB, and that was considered a sleeper hit. So, again, this is all just kind of in, within the context of what the usual uh, Zhang Yimou film makes. Um, considering uh, in the report, it says that the film might have cost as low as 20 million RMB. Uh, it's definite that that the company will make their money back. Um, now it's a question of how much, and um, see how uh, if word of mouth will play into a film like this. And that's you know usually the case with these kind of films that they really rely on 
word of mouth and kind of long-term uh, box office. Um, word of mouth so far uh, seems to be okay. Uh, I believe much better than uh, uh, Woman Gun Noodle Shop, uh, much better than um, Zhang Yimou's uh, martial arts film. So uh, I'm kind of looking forward to it. It will be the closing film of this year's Hong Kong Asian Film Festival, and it will open in Hong Kong in November. So we'll see. All right. And our final bit of news this week uh, is about the film, the Hong Kong film Hot Summer Days. Uh, this is getting a U.S. release uh, in the United States, but more significantly, it's going to be getting uh, distribution over the Fox, the, the new Fox channel, or I guess it's not a channel, it's a Fox.com streaming service. And um, so it's going to open in cinemas on October 1st. And then following the launch, it will launch on Fox.com Video On Demand. And this is something new. This is the first uh, Chinese language feature to be on Fox.com. So, I don't know. Do you think this is going to have some good exposure for the film? Um, I expect it. Well, uh, I mean, this being Fox's first uh, Chinese film, I, I kind of expected that there might be a chance that the film will get uh, American release, but um, I'm surprised that it's getting a theatrical release, which is kind of, a, I guess, a big thing. Um, I would say that the film doesn't isn't quite good enough, I suppose, to to be to hit that because most foreign films in America, or almost all foreign films in America, they go to an art house market, and this film isn't really art house. Um, it should be interesting because Fox hasn't done um, video on demand before, I believe. Um, yeah, I think that I think they're fairly new. In yeah, it's always been the market, Netflix, so. right? Um, these there's a direct, direct digital distribution that um, by a studio and this kind of a new thing. So um, I wonder if the if it's the right film to launch the service. But you know, at least it'll 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 play to an audience uh, abroad. Uh, so good for the directors and good for the cast. Um, and I hope and I hope it finds an audience in America. Yeah, I'm I'm I'm. I'm kind of just wishing it was over on Netflix, though, because so many more people utilize that service right now. Um, I'm not sure if Fox is going to have the the staying power because they're you know Fox has a stigma to their their brand, if you will, because of things mm. like Fox News, and mm. you know something that like Netflix is completely independent because that's all it does that it's it's just video and video on demand. Um, so I think it'd be kind of, I'd hate to see this, you know, film falter, um, in its distribution on this service because of, you know, something, you know, the lack of participation by a lot of people because they have something against Fox and so they wouldn't visit Fox.com and use the video on demand service. Maybe I'm overthinking things a little bit too much, but I, I'd kind of prefer to see it on an independent, you know, on uh, Netflix or maybe iTunes or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, considering that Netflix has just sync an entire video chain in America, um, yeah, I, I think it might even get better exposure on something established like Netflix. I'm not sure about giving it a launch on a new service that you know that would take a while to to for people to warm up to because it's only it only it's only available. I mean, films from that studio is only available. I mean, let's not talk. Let's not consider whether it's Fox or Paramount or Warner Brothers. It's just the fact that it's on a streaming service with limited content. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to get the audience that it, it, it needs or is the widest audience that it needs. Yeah. 
And you, we, we ought to just briefly mention the point you kind of snuck in there that uh, Blockbuster Video has gone bankrupt. Yes. Um, I mean, it's no surprise. Netflix was the better service. Um, Blockbuster joined the whole video mailing thing way too late. Um, and their employees don't know anything about movies. <laughs> so what what can you do? I mean, it, it, the whole old, old way of renting films is going going out in, yeah. in America. But, you know, I'm kind of sad yeah. because one of the things I look forward to every time I, I go back to the States to visit my parents is, you know, there are two blockbuster video shops fairly near the house, and I always like going over and just stocking up on stuff that I'd never find on iTunes and that I'd never want to go out and actually buy. You know, uh, like, and I'm, I'm talking some of the theatrical stuff that I'd never go see in the theater, some of the direct-to-DVD stuff, um, direct-to-video stuff, you know, knockoff movies like Transmorphers and stuff like this that I can just, you know, spend a few dollars to rent because, you know, internationally, who knows if we'll ever get Netflix. Um, and iTunes has a good library, but for, like, the off-brand stuff, for the B-movie stuff, they tend not to get a lot of that, Um so I'm I'm hoping that somebody can come in and maybe rescue Blockbuster at some point and keep some of the stores open because I'd hate to see their stores go. But and they're pretty much the only game in town for um, direct DVD rentals still, at least in South Florida. I mean, there's not any alternatives. Um, but I guess you know more and more people. I know my dad uses Netflix. He uses both the streaming service and the mail order service. And I think he mm -hmm. quit using Blockbuster like a year or two years ago. So um, I'll, I'm a, I'll be a little bit disappointed. I, I, I actually like going into the store and just kind of slowly walking through the new release aisles and looking and, you know, finding something that I've never heard of that looks intriguing and, you know, taking it home and renting it and watching it and bringing it back. And I, I think I'll miss that. Maybe I'm a bit too nostalgic. No, I think I see. Uh, I think I see that you know certain people like to browse movies, and I too, you know, who just walk into a video store and kind of see you know what they have, uh, what they have, whatever they have available. Um, I know everything's going digital, but one thing I will miss about Blockbuster uh, that you haven't mentioned is their secondhand selection. Yeah. Um, you know, say I kind of like the movie. I rented it once. Uh, I don't want to pay full price on it. But I'll just wait for Blockbuster have it for you know half the price from the stores, and you know if I stayed in America, um, it would be great if they had Blu-ray, secondhand Blu-rays. Yeah. That would have been you know fantastic. But now we might not be able to ever see that kind of chance again. I don't remember if I if when I was there in the summer if they had started doing secondhand Blu-rays or not. I think they might have had a couple, because they do have a Blu-ray section. Um, it's mm -hmm. it's. You know, it's not nowhere near even half the size of the regular DVD section. But yeah, I mean, that, that's another thing. I always like looking through the, the really, really cheap bins of stuff where, you know, they don't even have cases for a lot of the things. They just sort of have the generic rental case. And then they usually have some of the newer, newer releases, like three for $20 or something. And, you know, you can get some pretty decent deals on stuff if you're, um, you know, if you're a collector like we are. And without Blockbuster around, you know, they, there won't be that much of a secondhand market unless you go on to something like eBay, I guess. Um, there's still all the uh, small, small uh, video stores, but let's face it, as much as we like, you know, mom and pop stores and, you know, go mom and pop businesses, but let's face it, we consumers like 
cheaper things and you know secondhand discs in these stores are not cheap All right, it's time to move on to our East Screen film for this week. And that is, at long last, the epic Donnie Yen film, Legend of the Fist, The Return of Chen Zen. I don't know why my voice just changed then. <laughs> that was totally unnecessary. <laughs> um, so, Kevin, tell us a little bit about The Legend of Chen Zen and some of your thoughts on it, and then I will, I will try to put my outsider view and uh, my foreign spin on my my, pers- my my take on this film, if you will. Okay, let me uh, crack my knuckles and uh, do a Donnie. Uh, okay, um, so the, the character Chen, Chen Jin, um, he's supposedly, uh, in, the, in the legend, uh, is that he's the uh, student and disciple of um, Foyan Jia, uh, who was the, 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 title, uh, the main character in uh, Jet Li's Fearless. Uh, of course, this is all fake because he's not a real character. But he was first in uh, the Bruce Lee film Fist of Fury, I believe. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong if that, as I go along, by the way, with this history stuff. Um, so in that film, I believe Bruce Lee played the Chen Zhen character. And the film ended with him uh, uh, fighting an uh, evil Japanese uh, karate guy and, uh, and getting shot. Uh, this film, The Le- Legend of Fist, Return of Chen Zhen, um, supposes that Chen Zhen survived that, uh, the bullets, and uh, it opens, um, I believe, a few years after the event of the first film, um, or at least a decade, I'm not so sure. Anyway, so it opens on the battles, uh, battlefields of World War One in France. Um, it shows that Chen Zhen was not only, uh, did not only survive this attack, he also managed to join this 150,000 Chinese laborers who were sent uh, this is actually a little known uh, bit of history. Uh, I'm not sure if any of them had you know kung fu abilities like Donnie, but um, the film supposes that there was anyway. Uh, so after he survives this uh, battle, uh, he disguises himself as uh, one of his uh, uh, comrades and um, goes back to Shanghai amidst the chaos that is the um, the occupation. Uh, apparently, Shanghai was uh, split into multiple factions. Um, with multiple nations, um, and uh, it's kind of a mess. So the most of the film takes place in a club called the Casablanca, uh, not a very subtle reference at a certain uh, classic film. Um, it's a club run by Master Lil, played by Anthony Wong. Um, so Donnie manages, uh, I'm sorry, Chen Jin manages to 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 um, make his way into the club and, and make friends with uh, Master Lil, but he's actually part of this movement, um, uh, that is um, against the uh, possible Japanese invasion. So, um, as now a partner on this night, uh, this nightclub, he meets uh, Kiki, uh, a singer that's played by Shu Chi, um, and he also, of course, makes acquaintances with the evil Japanese soldiers, um, because Japanese soldiers uh, know that he's up to something, and, and meanwhile, they're planning their own invasion, and. Um, they they were uh, ready to to assassinate a general a Chinese general in the streets when um, when Chen Zhen puts on his Kato mask and his super mask Avenger costume and saves the day, which uh, raises the Japanese attention. So the rest of the film is this 
race is this battle between Chenzhen and apparently the entire Japanese Imperial Army. Um, you know, a film like this, uh, Chenzhen and Fist of Fury, you know that nationalism is going to be is going to be you know a big, play a big part in the film and. Um, I would say that half the dialogue is didactic about nationalism, and then the other half is just sort of implies it. So the entire film is just this one big pot, one big metal iron ball of nationalism, you know, smashing into the audience's face, telling you, you know, you know, China is not weak, Japan is evil, China is not weak, Japan is evil, and this kind of goes back and forth between these two things. Um, it's getting, it's kind of getting ugly. Um, it's, it's, it's a pretty ugly thing, and it's pretty consistent and it's kind of depressing and of course you know people would say you know oh, but the Japanese were that evil the Japanese did this and they did that but you know is this something that we really want to you know this, that was 60 years ago you know race you know back then when you know uh, African Americans and, and, and white people still went to different schools you know today is a really different world and is it still okay to to kind of encourage that kind of thought um, I think that's something we can get into later uh, Paul when we when we truly talk about the film um as far as that the story goes um it's a mess um it's really juvenile there's whole thing about a death list the, the japanese having a death list and and this being a race between chenzhen and the japanese soldiers to uh to rescue these people or to let the japanese kill these people and there's these these attempt at you know double seven spy intrigue thing and then um and then, and, you know, there's uh, even a bit of, you know, like I said, there's a whole pot of different cinematic references. You got the, the, the Saving Power Ryan thing in the beginning. You got the Casablanca scene, you know, in the nightclub. You got the, the, the you know, the, the ultra exaggerated uh, portrayal of the Japanese soldiers. And, of course, you got the Donnie doing, doing the action. Um, and the storytelling is a mess. The story is a mess. And it's just this whole, you know, mixed pot of different things. There's nothing really original about this film. Um, Andrew Lau, you know, he's a cinematographer and he's always been good with visuals, providing visuals, capturing visuals, but he's a terrible storyteller. Um, he reminds me of Daniel Lee, uh, a filmmaker worse than him, I would say. Um, and, and there's a lot of MTV style and there's a lot of uh, quick cutting and, 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 and um, character, when characters show up, he doesn't bother to use you know, storytelling to introduce his character, but he just sort of gives you a text, you know, like you're watching a documentary, like you're watching an MTV, uh, almost like this information is too, too unimportant to actually have to develop to tell you, just tell you outright, just something that get out of the way. Um, he's always been kind of an over-director, over-directs his films, but he's never been able to really tell a story or direct his actor. So the acting's all over the place. You know, you got Donnie kind of taking control of this whole film. You got Shuchi, you know, not giving not giving much to do and just looking like she's about to break in tears half the time. Um, and it's, you know, it doesn't really make her attractive heroine uh, or a character to care about. In fact, not many of these characters are worth caring about. You got Huambo uh, being directed to Toad, well, being told by Andrew Lau to just keep acting like Chapman Toe because Chapman, Chapman Toe ended up dubbing him in Cantonese anyway. So he just keeps, you know, doing his comedic, Thing that you know that Andrew doesn't really know how to contain. Um, Anthony Wong just seems like he—he he, it seems like he's an earlier incarnation of uh, Jay House father from Initial D. You know, he's just playing this. You know, uh, this 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 
this kind of rascal character, um, you know, he's fine, um, but nothing much to do. Um, so, again, back to Donnie, it's just kind of Donnie, because he's the action director, so, you know, it's very much him selling himself, you know, uh, when he's in the nightclub, he's got the mustache on, and, you know, he's playing the suave, uh, I believe I see in the notes, Bruce Wayne type, um, I agree with that. Um, and then, you know, you got the action where he's totally doing that, um, he's got that thing where he pulls back his fist and then he punches and you know just repeating these these moves you got the it man you know ultra punch um and of course he imitates the bruce lee the the yell um but it doesn't show up until the end so when it comes up it's kind of strange um but there is some decent action sequence the opening as ridiculous as it is is fun um and I, I, there's one sequence in the middle. That's when uh, when when Chen Zin first puts on his costume and and uh, plows down a group of assassins. Um, I thought that was um, that was a pretty good sequence. Uh, some good action, some good some good moves. But um, uh, the thing is, these action kind of makes the film feels more like a waste. Um, it makes you. It, and I tweeted this uh, when I after I saw the film. I said I miss. Uh, Flashpoint films like Flashpoint because you know at least you know it was equally stupid but at least it's not this ugly without this kind of nationalism stuff Um, but again it's not really a surprise considering what kind of film this is Um, I believe I tweeted today saying that Gordon Chen say that uh, said that a Chinese superhero must fight foreigners because uh, that's where most Chinese heroes come from I don't agree with that statement and I think we can talk a little bit about does a Chinese superhero need to be one in this period? And two, does it need to fight foreigners? Well, we're back, and we've just been joined by Webmaster Kozo, who also goes by the name of Ross on occasion, and he's going to share some of his thoughts with us about the Donnie Yen's epic feature, The Legend of the Fist. So, you know, what did you think in terms of how would you compare this film with some of the other films that Donnie's done recently, like um, Ip Man or... Um, Empress and the Warriors, or or some of the other stuff, Painted Skin. Well, well, it, it Man is the best thing to compare it to, because there you're you're dealing with like a Chinese folk hero in a way, you know. Although It Man wasn't a folk hero until they made It Man, but um, Chen Zhen is you know a Chinese folk hero in a way, so it's easier to compare those two. And the thing though, the thing about it is you know Donnie Yen is now like bigger than life, basically. You know, he's he's like God. <laughs> he's the most powerful fighter in the universe. So, you know, it's, it's, he has this persona that's really annoying in films, I think. Uh, people don't agree with me. Some people think he's awesome, which is fine. But it's just, you know, when he plays certain characters, he really just comes off as being just really kind of insincere. Mm-hmm. You know, too, trying too hard to be cool, trying too hard to be angry, trying too hard to be righteous. It's, it's, he overacts in this way that's, that's kind of inimitable, and it's uh, unable to imitate. Um. It's funny when it's a, he's a supporting role because it, it kind of outlines how, you know, he's kind of incongruous the rest of the film. When he defines the film like in Shenzhen, it's just, uh, it overwhelms the thing. But the thing I really like about his Ip Man character is that he really has to play a humble character. 
and the anger is there, but he it's the anger is beneath, you know, and he's not like like doing the whole you know Donnie Yen is 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 bursting with righteous anger thing, which basically is every character in every film he's ever played. And it's interesting that like, you say that because as I was watching the film, I was saying to myself, thinking back to the way Bruce Lee had portrayed the character and in some ways the way that Jet Li played the character, is that they were both much more of the reserved and humble aspect and just sort of unleashing the rage in those moments when they needed to. And I felt that, you know, Ipman, the way he played Ipman was probably a lot more like what he should have done here for this character um, rather than trying to be sort of the, you know, the suave, debonair playboy on the one hand, and then, you know, the, the, the Cato, Green Hornet, Black Mask character on the other hand. But see, but see that's why... Go ahead. You see, we've got a, you, well, you got, you got two different directors. One, you got, you know, Wilson Yip, who, who's actually done, you know, lower-key dramas, you know, before, and he knows how to handle a more subtle character. And you've got an it man that's trying to be, to make him into kind of a Wong Fei Hong kind of hero, you know, uh, a kind of more humble, uh, but still very strong hero that is not, you know, flamboyant. Um, but here you got Andrew Lau, who's, who's, who makes, you know, really flamboyant films, make really bombastic films, and there's no way they could expect Andrew Lau to, to, to tone down a character like that, especially uh, a folk hero character like Chen Jin. Well, especially when he's played by Donnie Yen, who, you know, I'm glad you use the word flamboyant, because that pretty much describes the overacting of Donnie that, that <laughs> I'm used to. When I think of Donnie Yen overacting, I think of flamboyance. You know, he's always ripping his shirt off, and like, you know, pointing at people, and grabbing his belt, and throwing objects away, like he doesn't need them anymore for completely pointless reasons. You know, like whenever, whenever you know, Donnie Yen has to make a point, he like throws something. Like, <laughs> you know, like, I don't care about this thing, even though it probably cost $80,000. Like his leather jacket in SPL, he throws it off. And he throws it away, like, you know, just to punctuate his action scene. But you're like, why? It's just a jacket. <laughs> do you have to do that? Or, or like the nunchucks. Um, he, he threw it all away at the end of the fight. It's like, why? Yeah. You, know, you, th- you get rid of it before you fight the guy, sure. But when you're done fighting and you're like, yeah, all this blood is everywhere, and then I'm going to take off my jacket and throw it away. Right. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like, why? You know, you know, that's the same thing with his nunchucks in, in Fist of Fury. You know, you, I mean, not Fist of Fury, in, in, Chen, in Chen Zen. You'd think after you, 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 you like, deliver a major ass kick, and, you know, now's the time to calm down a bit. You just toss them aside. But instead, no, you have to throw them with like the force of like you know a, a thousand meteors or something. <laughs> it, it's 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 but you know it's it, Donnie Yen is a flamboyant actor. He 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 does that you know and you, it's like Dragon Tiger Gate is like a Donnie Yo like or Donnie Yen orgy, you know. Basically, <laughs> even better because he's like punching nothing. He's just punching air, and it's exciting because <laughs> you know that air deserves to be punched. <laughs> yeah, I I guess my biggest problem with the film is. You know, I I did like the action, and you know there were I liked some of the su- supporting characters, and I wanted to see more of the supporting characters. I wanted to know more about Anthony Wong, and his character and his relationship with uh, Chen Zhen, and more about Huang Bo, and you know it's I didn't get enough of those characters, and I guess it was because Donnie himself had so much screen time, but it seemed like a lot of the screen time was pointless. In, in what we were given. I just think it it didn't seem to be paced very well um, for, for the story it was trying to tell. 
in, in terms of the action, though, it was over the top, which is to be expected, but it was like, it, for, for me, action needs to have a logic to it. And throughout the whole film, Donnie is like the, the unstoppable force. And every punch, every kick he throws, it like thunders. You know, the sound effects they use were rocking the theater. And it, it's, you know, it's just like, it's like Superman punching someone. And that's fine. That's what they want to do to establish the, the absolute brutality and toughness of this character. But then, at the end, in the final fight, he doesn't have that anymore. You know, it's like that's gone suddenly because he's facing the final nemesis. And so it, it sort of breaks away from, from that logic. And I, I, they, they, it's not a new thing. I've seen other films that have done that. But I always get disappointed when that happens because I expect... I expect the fight to look and sound a different way when he's finally fighting, you know, the the, the big antagonist. And I, I would say that that final fight was a bit of a letdown. And the, and the antagonist himself, he was just so stereotypical. He was such a stereotypical, you know, over-the-top bad guy. And, you know, the there was just a whole lot of nonsense logic. At one point, they beat him up, and then they let him go, and then they're looking for him. They're like... We're looking for Chen Zhen. It's like, you just let him go a couple of weeks ago. I mean, <laughs> it, you know, it's just nonsense like that, that, you know, and it's like, oh, well. It's so dramatic. They want, they want him it? to heal. The he's guy, a, he's I, a, it's obvious he wants him to heal to, you know, for the final fight. But then, you know, it's sort of a gesture of honor or, or fairness or something. But then the final fight, he's got like a hundred other guys he's got to fight before he fight, fights, you know, the bad guy, which is, you know, an homage to the original Bruce Lee scene, but the logic of it is just, it's just not there. And I guess this is goes, goes back to what Kevin said. He was saying earlier, you know, that he doesn't think Andrew Lau is good at storytelling. He's good at visuals. He's good at depicting, you know, some of the action and stuff like that. But at, uh, storytelling, it, it tends to be a bit weak, I guess. And I, for, for this film, I would definitely agree with that. But you know, in general, Andrew Lau has never been really... You know, maybe it goes against what people say. But honestly, how many good Andrew Lau films have there been without Alan Mack? Um, if you think about it, especially... Some people in, do like you know, the Stormriders. Except for the Stormriders. And even that is really just, like, really kind of dead. You know, that, it's, it's, well, that depends on who you ask. I mean, if you ask fans of the... Diehard fans of the comic book, they hate that movie. Um, okay. So... It, it, but it, it's 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 interesting. But Stormriders are really more fun for the same reason that a lot of films, when you first see something new, is kind of are kind of fun. It's it's not a great film by now. When you watch it now, it, it's not. It doesn't really stand the test of time. At least this is my opinion. You know, I think it survives on nostalgia. And also, when people first saw it, it was like, wow. Yeah. But you know, they had never done that at that time. And still, it's really just kind of like boring storytelling. And and how good would that movie be without like Sunny Chiba overacting? <laughs> probably, probably not that good. You know, that's not a that film. When you watch it, it's like when you did you think Aaron Kwok would ever win Best Actor awards? No. <laughs> it, it's just it's you know it, it's really just uh it's just kind of it's flashy at points, but it's 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 Stormriders is not it's not really emotionally involving. Uh, Young and Dangerous films by Andrew Lau were were good. You know, we enjoyed those. I thought I think I don't know if you guys enjoyed them, but I liked them generally speaking. But I, 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 I really like the, I would say the first two or three, and then they started getting into the offshoots and things, and it, I, they got a little bit repetitive, but yeah, I, I enjoyed them a lot. 
I enjoyed the films when they still when they did looked least like a modern Andrew Lau film when he was still you know he's the lead, he he was still off that Chunking Express cinematography kind of style and and using a handheld and a cinema verite stuff. I still enjoy I enjoyed it at that point. I think for that he he's really good for street level, you know, because the flashiness gives it that energy that the sets and the uh, and like you could say the cinematography and the art direction lack because they're very real seeming. Yeah, but when he like does with the big budget, uh, you know, uh, big production uh, stuff, it just looks empty. You know, MTV style was always cool because it, it 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 you know it brought energy to things that maybe you know might lack them. You know, you could tell stories in certain ways, but you know that you know maybe stories you could they could you could make things more visually interesting and exciting when you know in reality if you just set a camera there you just be people talking to each other, but. When you do with like these films that are really based on their, their very strong narratives and tension, you know, and it, it doesn't work. It, it becomes too forced. And Andrew Lau has been doing that this his whole career. And the only reason that you could say that uh, that uh, Infernal Affairs were so great is you know he had better actors and better you know a good partner um, who really maybe is better at those things than Andrew Lau is. Because look what in the two thousand in the in the last decade what Andrew Lau has done without. Um, Without Alan Mack, like you know, how much stuff is really that good? Uh, Bullets of Love. Um, uh, okay, the Park. Man Call Hero. Well, Man Call Hero, yeah, but you know, everyone conveniently forgets the Park. This was his follow-up to Infernal Affairs, his 3D horror film. Who remembers this movie? Nobody. You do because. Well, yes, we do because it was you know. I I select I select I choose to forget it. Okay, but it, it you know it's it's just it it did nothing you know it's it's worse than a Pan Brothers film, and that's saying a lot now. Um, and, you know, like what a Dance of a Dream, you know that's fun, but for what reason? Because it has Andy Lau acting like Andy Lau, and you know it breaks the fourth wall once, and and then what's this called? Uh, Look for a star. Uh, Daisy was just like 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 a joke on Korean cinema, an inadvertent joke. It, you know, sorry, but you know, Andrew Lau is just—he's uh, a great visual director, and he's great technically. But yeah, he's not a storyteller. Right. And Initial D—I know Kevin hates Initial D. I like Initial D, but it also is just so by the numbers in a way. It doesn't have a life that—that that like you know, that you're really watching something come to life. Yeah. It, it's you know, it's, it's just really kind of uh, okay. I guess and, for, for, yeah. for this film, though, it. It seemed like he was trying to really do too much with, with the character. I mean, you've already got this established character who was made famous by Bruce Lee, who was, I guess he's been played by other people as well, but, um, you know, I, my favorite portrayal is uh, when Jet Li did it. And yet at the same time, you've got this, this whole craziness with the costume that just happens to look like you know the Cato costume, and at the same time he's he's you know he's he's running through buildings and you know he's like always posing on the top of a clock tower or somewhere, and so it's 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 almost Batman esque, you know, in some of the style that it's trying to portray, you know, some of the visual style that's being used, and it was just it, it just was like he was trying to do too many different movies. I think if he if he would have taken the approach, he said, all right, we're not going to do um, a, a thing like this. I'm just going to do like a, a science fiction black mask, or I'm going to do an alternative history kind of thing where, 
you know, what if, you know, what if China defeated Japan, sort of like uh, uh, the lost, the, that Korean movie, Lost Memories, um, you know, where it's, it's, he, he, he could really play with a lot of things if he wasn't simply tying it down to this period of history that, you know, you're definitely going to be against the Japanese. It's definitely going to build this sense of nationalism, you know, mm-hmm. and like Kevin was saying before, the, the statement that you've always got to have a Chinese hero fighting against foreigners because that's what they do. It doesn't have to be what they do. You've got a lot of options. You've got other ways you can tell stories if you're willing to go that route and you're not simply trying to gin up, you know, national sentiment for ticket sales during a holiday. But, you know, I, I, I thought about that, that, that statement earlier um, and the whole thing about, you know, a Chinese folk hero must be from that period and hence must fight foreigners. I, I think in a way that's sort of what Gordon Chan, they're trying to say that you can't have a super, you can't make a modern superhero movie, I think, partly because uh, because of the Chinese, uh, the government censors. Um, they don't encourage, uh, I believe, films of human extraordinary powers. Um, and I think that could be some of the problems that the, the censors won't allow, I guess, filmmakers to create a modern superhero, kind of like, uh, I guess, uh, American comic do you think that is one of the reasons why that a Chinese folk hero must be from that period and hence must fight foreigners? I don't buy that. I think that if they're doing, if they're doing, you know, something as a science fiction, as something that's clearly not based in reality, they can get away with, you know, whatever they want. I mean, look at Future X Cops. (laughs) (laughs) Actually, when I think about what what the film they could have made, I think of uh, like the Japanese film K-20. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like you know, it's an it's a fantastic Japan. You know, it's one that doesn't really exist. You know, it's an alternate history, and you know, and they just create this environment that he can do these things. And that's one way they could have done it. But you know, Chen Zhen doesn't. Chen Zhen's biggest deal is that he fights the Japanese. I mean, that is his claim to fame. Yeah. You know that mm-hmm. that he he fights Japanese for calling them sick men of Asia, and 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 not allowing them in parks like docks. Um. So if he's gonna play Chen Zhen, that's what he's gonna do. It'd be great if you could play another character, but you know, creativity—it's—it's it's hard to say. You know, uh, it, nowadays, you know, the, the sensitive point of all filmmaking, especially in Hong Kong and China, is money. How do you make money? How do you guarantee money? And of course, you know, how, how can you make money when your film gets chopped off? You know, gets kneecapped by a censorship bureau. Yeah. So, so what's the best way to to make sure that doesn't happen? Load your film in such a way that it won't happen. And you know, Chen Zhen does it. It it completely makes sure that this film will be will be playing in China. Um, I'm not I, saying that they I have to go that gone, far. I think it's gone yeah, well, too they far. They didn't have to go that far. Now. Well, yeah, I, no, I think it's gone too far, even to the point where even now Chinese audiences aren't really buying the film. The film has is getting fairly bad word of mouth, even in in mainland China, where their their the target audience is. And weren't weren't well, you, you know, tweeting earlier about it's not they're not going to get a play date in Japan? Oh yeah, yeah. I I don't see why anyone is surprised that the media Asia is having trouble selling this film to Japan. They keep saying no, no one would buy it in Japan. I mean, why? Yeah, but why would it's coming from? People are always people always always think. I hate to use this term, but people always think they're people. People always think they're they their it smells good. You know, I mean, it's like oh, I can't believe this person doesn't like me. <laughs> Yeah, it's like well, why don't you look the in time. the mirror, huh? <laughs> this I ask myself this all the time. Yeah, you know why don't people like me? Why is everyone so mean to me? 
yeah, I ask myself this all the time. I can't believe this person was mean to me. I just like you know spit in spit in their soup and uh, no, I mean yeah, it, it's like you know they, they, everyone thinks that the, the reasons for doing things are completely justified because you know they're self centered. Chinese are as self centered as everybody else. You know, Americans are completely self centered in their filmmaking. British are self centered in their filmmaking. Japanese are pretty self centered sometimes too. Everyone is. Um, so everyone's incredulous. Why I was trying to make a fair film. This stuff really happened. There was a superhero running around China. No, um, I'm probably really going off base here, but it's it's just, yeah, you know. I mean, besides, were they supposed to say, well, yeah, I kind of understood why they didn't want to buy it, but we were really mean to him in our movie. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I, I think that you could you could have done this film and you could have had smart villains. You you know, it could have been. They just went to the old conventions, you know, the 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 the, the raping, the name calling, the. All of that that you would you you'd use to generate anger in not just the character but in your audience, and there's no you know it's so cardboard. There's no like level of realism. I mean, one of the 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 main villain, you know, he's one of these guys that at the instant he gets mad at an underling, and they're officers in the military. But the instant he gets mad, he he kills him. I mean, who in what military, especially an organized military like Japan, can simply kill officers with no repercussions whatsoever? I mean, that is just such shoddy writing. To to, and it, and it's simply used for the purpose of saying that this guy is a supreme bad guy. That's like I don't know. It's like Saturday morning cartoon stuff. It just uh, maybe I was expecting too much. Well, I'm sure that they cut the uh, paperwork scenes. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I needed. I needed I needed paperwork scenes. I needed the paperwork scenes. Yeah, you know, that would have been good, you know. It, no, it, it, it's it's shorthand. You know, these guys are the, I don't, I don't want to rip on Andrew Lau anymore, so I won't. I'll say there are many filmmakers are just not imaginative. What's the quickest way to get something done? You know, Gordon Chan, you know, he's he's better than this too. They've actually made complex films before. Remember Beast Cops? Everyone loves to point to Beast Cops. And, you know, some people now watch it, wonder what everyone was talking about. Like, what the hell? What's so great about that movie? But the reason it was so interesting was, you know, characters are all complex. Even the bad guys are complex. You know, and these were Hong Kong movies when they were really still Hong Kong movies, when they were telling stories in a way, you know, that kind of represented Hong Kong and showed Hong Kong and showed different parts of it. And it's people and it's good guys, bad guys. That, That was really what was interesting about those movies. Um... And, you know, some facets of the relationships between people. You know, Beast Cops was an awesome movie. And Gordon Chan, God knows what happened to him. Um, uh, he wrote this um, Legend of the Fist, which is He also produced shocking. it, yes. Yes, and produced it. He also made Painted Skin, which actually I, I don't think is that bad. No, I like Painted Skin. Hmm? I liked Painted Skin a lot. Okay, I yeah, didn't I like mean, Painted Skin. <laughs> a lot of people I know didn't like it, but I, I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, and I and I liked a, I liked Donnie in it because he was not being, you know, the typical Donnie. He was sort of downplaying that role. Uh, for yeah, he a was a little off filter though. He was a little weird in that. I don't know what it was. He was like he was in a different movie. Uh, <laughs> Donnie was definitely know. very Donnie to me in that movie though. I don't know, but that's me. But he didn't have all, all the really pronounced cool scenes, like hair flying scenes, or uh, or he had know, all the action. Remember he he had all the action. He also had Vicky Chow call him the best man ever. That's really my, my favorite favorite line about Donnie. You're the best man ever. And I'm pretty sure Donnie paid off Vicky Chow to, to add that line to the film. 
It's true. And remember, Shu Chi also said that Donnie is the best man ever <laughs> in the press for Legend of, for Legend of the Fist. Maybe that's in his you know, contract, that that line has to come up in every movie now. <laughs> maybe Donnie Yen really is a good guy. You know, I, I don't really doubt that he's not a bad guy. I, that he's, I don't doubt that he's a good guy. And, you know, he can play the piano and he's obviously, you know, <laughs> he can use a, he can, he can, he can wear a belt very well. But it, it's just, you know, conveying that on film is hard. Uh, it's, 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 some guys got it, some guys don't. And I don't think Donnie Yen has it in him to be suave or cool. He can well, play he, certain characters very well. He's got, hands down, the best cameo in Founding of a Republic. Or I should say hands up, because that's what he does. He raises his hand. Yeah, <laughs> and, and basically, you know, designs the flag. He's Betsy Ross. Uh, he's, uh, uh, he's the Betsy Ross of China. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I, I am quite critical of the film because it, I was hoping for it to be better. I did like the action. I just was very disappointed with the tone that, that it took. But um, I, I don't want to spoil anything, but you can look to the end and read into it. Uh, there's, a, there's a somewhat famous character who shows up uh, at the end and you can read into it the idea of a possible sequel. Now, what do you think about that, Ross? Do you think we'll get a sequel out of this? To be honest, I, I'd say no. I don't see why they should make a sequel to a movie that not that many people really like. Um, Donnie Yen has millions of projects to choose from. He doesn't have to make a sequel to this one. But do you get the sense that they were planning for that, that they're maybe yes. expecting yes. it to do well, and they wrote that in, expecting that? Yeah, I think so. Almost obvious, you know. And Andrew Lau talks about how he wants to make it like a Chinese James Bond, but you know, I'm I'm sorry, James Bond does much more interesting things than this. <laughs> I mean, like you know, Legend uh, Legend of Fist. Uh, there's a whole storyline in there about this, this political, you know, stuff going on, and you know, these back and forths, like three parties working against each other. Do you really remember or care about any of it? It just, it's just, you know, you only learn about that stuff from people sitting around a table. Um, yeah, but that, that's like the Chinese aesthetics. You remember Founder Republic? That movie was two hours of meetings. You know, that's surprisingly, how people make decisions in China, apparently. But surprisingly, that film had way more interesting meetings than this film. Because, <laughs> you know, it was weird. I actually thought that film had very interesting meetings. Maybe it's just weird because, like, you know, they pan around the table like, wait, be on lie. He's at the table, too. And, and, and he's not saying anything, and then they go past him, and he's gone. So maybe that's what made it interesting. One thing I didn't like about this movie is nobody made any interesting choices. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like no one made a dramatic choice anywhere in the film. Yeah, you know, only one scene with Shuchi maybe had kind of like a dramatic emotional moment. And you know, no, it, but that I, was basically I, against, huh? Yeah, I think I think that people just sort of. Went with what they were expected to do within within the mode, I guess, of this of this type of film. Yeah, I mean, the evil people stayed evil, the good people stayed good, and well, let's, yeah, let's contrast it with another film, uh, Bodyguards and Assassins. Mm-hmm. Lots of characters. Everybody has a dramatic choice. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of the times it involves, oh, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna kill myself to help other people, but that is awesome. You know, <laughs> it. it <laughs> At least that is a really great choice, you know, for mm-hmm. that film. You know, the, the people do these things that, you know, it's, 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 it's emotionally stirring. No, but, but, but seriously, you know, it's like nobody, who in this film makes an interesting choice anywhere? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, or a dramatic choice or an emotional one. 
Um, Anthony yeah, Wong. Quambo, that's an interesting. Yeah, I think uh, I, I'm, yeah. <laughs> for me the most interesting character was Anthony Wong, and he just didn't have he a did lot. Nothing. Yeah, that's the thing. He did nothing. He didn't have a lot. I think he could have. There could have been more with him, you know, because he was but, the one know, who was sort of riding the middle line. He was that guy who was, you know, uh, tr- trying to be helpful behind the scenes in a, in a sense, but at the same time he didn't want his business to go away you know because he would lose his position so i think there was just a lot that could have they could have done with him um you know but at the same time we've seen stuff like that before i mean look at um the jackie chan movie uh what was it uh miracles or mr canton and lady rose you know a similar kind of idea similar kind of position um not a whole lot that's really new but at least that movie had uh inventive action (laughs) and it had a whole but much better story and great, better cameos too. Now, you know, Legend of the Fish is just a disappointment, but it's not one I'm even really that disappointed in. You know, it's it's, you know, Donnie Yen is like, I know he's such big a he's like on everyone's lips now because he's like you know king of the box office and box office guarantee, and it's amazing. You know, he's capitalizing now, especially that he's like the only game in town for martial arts. And I still like Donnie Yen movies, but you know, they, they, these are not like award-winning films. listening to the East Screen West Screen podcast. Visit kongcast.com for more. All right, it's time to move on to our West Screen news for the week. Uh, first bit of news the $30 home movie. Uh, this is an article that I came across uh, on Bloomberg, and I actually Twittered a little bit about this uh, throughout the week, and I had some interesting exchanges with uh, different people uh, about this concept. So basically, Sony Pictures, Warner Brothers, and Walt Disney are in talks with uh, a cable TV system to offer films for $30 per showing as not at the same time as they run in theaters, but it's as soon after. Now, how you define that is difficult to say, but they're talking with uh, Comcast and Time Warner, and they're also looking at streaming on devices such as uh, the Xbox console from Microsoft. And so I, I got to thinking about this, and I, you know, I said, I think I tweeted that, all right, th- I understand that this is great for you know, families, if you've got like a family of four or five, you know, and you're, you're watching a movie, a first run movie for $30, that's like six bucks a person. But if you're a single individual, this is obviously not something that's going to work. Um, and different people sent me some, you know, different messages on their thoughts on it. Some people think that this would be a good idea for me. I think if it was $30 a movie, I'd try and find 30 friends to invite over and we all pay a dollar. Or, or something, but just by myself, I don't, I don't know if this would work. And the other question that popped in my head is, will this be something that you would have continuous access to, or is this just like pay-per-view, where it's a one-off? And then how far after the film is released in the cinemas would you have access to this? So if it's just like you know a week or two weeks, I can foresee something like this negatively impacting cinemas. I mean, if you've got that family of five... Um, you know, $6 a person is a lot cheaper. You don't have to 
fight in the and pay concession stand prices. Um, you don't have to get in the family roadster and head out to the cinema and deal with parking and all that other stuff. Some people who you know enjoy the movie going experience, but arguably there'd be a lot of people who'd prefer to do this in the comfort of their own home, provided they have a big screen TV and they have a you know a good stream has a good stream access. And I could see this negatively impacting cinemas, so I'm not sure why the cinemas would really get behind this idea. So, what do you think about this, Kevin? Do you think this would be a be something that you would you would look forward to, or do you think this might be a problem? Uh, for thirty dollars, I mean, when you pay money for a home home video, um, you're one you're buying a price, you're paying a price that's slightly higher than than um, than a movie ticket because you're you're planning to own it. And you're gonna you're gonna watch it again and again and again. But if you're paying thirty dollars for only one viewing on a inferior projection equipment, uh, your TV, your TV speakers, uh, even a, a small home theater system, you're get you know you're getting a inferior presentation of the film, and yet you're playing you're paying so much more than a movie ticket. Um, I know movie buffs definitely won't go for for it, but um, I think it might work. I guess in suburban family homes, like you were saying, uh, because a family. They we calculated a family's day out at the theaters would cost much more than 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 you know paying for one viewing of these films. Um, so I'm a little conflicted. I, I can see that why it would work for some people. Um, and you're right, home exhibitors definitely would not buy this, and I would expect them to be vocal enough to to not let this plan go through. I think. Yeah, and I got an interesting message from a uh, guy on Twitter, uh, Matt Seidel, I think is how you say his name. And he'd actually said that uh, his big concern is if they do do a cloud model of this, where you know you would have it would be basically in a cloud library, and you could access it as many times as you want for that price, is that at any time it could be revoked, right? Um, and this is something that people I think on the who own the Kindle had happen to them through Amazon, where they had certain books that there was suddenly a copyrights issue with some books that were thought to be public domain, and people had these books on their Kindles, and suddenly they vanished because Amazon pulled them. And people, some of the people were using these for school. They had, had put notes in them, you know, electronic notes and things, and people were outraged by this. And I think this is, you know, I, I wasn't thinking of it until he had brought that up because I don't have a problem with cloud libraries, but then, yeah, if, if the distributor or the owner or the manager of the cloud library still has that ability that after you've paid, they can suddenly say, well, we're sorry, you no longer have access to this. Um, that puts another sort of kink in the system that makes me very skeptical about it. Kind of reminds me of the old uh, the old DivX system. Not sure if many people remember that, but like the before yeah. DVD took off, they had DivX, and basically it was... The DivX, you could watch it like three or four or five times, and then it would basically get locked up, and you'd have to buy it again, if I remember correctly. Yeah, I think I, I keep thinking that it was going to be like one of those uh, Mission Impossible things where the disc burns up in the in the in the player yeah. while you're <laughs> after you watch it once. <laughs> or maybe they put in some subliminal message where you actually forget that you saw the film, like at the end. You know, it hypnotizes <laughs> you, and so you think, I've not seen that film. I need to buy it again, right? Um, yeah, I would need that for something like Transformers 2. <laughs> <laughs> in that case, you want to forget the film. 
exactly. Well, no, like and like you said, um, I'm worried about that whole you know having the studio control the access of the content thing. You know, this is obviously they're very keeping this on a very tight leash, only giving one showing. Um, and obviously there will be people who want to exploit that. But um, because I'm very wary of any anything where the the content provider has almost too much control over how people access the content. Yeah. Right. One thing I will say. Oh, go ahead, Ross. Well, I was going to say one thing I will say though is that you were saying the thing about thirty bucks. If you live in LA, thirty bucks is only two people. So you know what? For the movies, <laughs> works fine in LA. Yeah. And the food is better, and no parking. Yeah. So hey. <laughs> well, that's what that's what um, one of the guys was saying to me on Twitter. He was saying, you know, he he takes his son out, and you know, by the by the time they get done with everything, they're spending well over 30 bucks. You know, that's including concessions and, and those things, which are, you know, grossly overpriced, but, you know, understanding that that's how theaters make their money primarily. So um, it, it's, it definitely looks like there's going to be a change in the way films are going to be viewed within our lifetime. And I don't know if we're going to see these massive cinemaplexes, you know, ultimately go under. And this is something we'll talk a little bit in our West Screen movie Afterlife because it deals with uh, 3D and some of their their attempts to actually generate more revenue. So our um, <clears throat> our second bit of news this week, uh, just a little bit of news that made me smile. Uh, David Tennant, who some people may know as the last uh, incarnation, not the current incarnation, but the last incarnation of Doctor Who, is going to be taking part in a Fright Night remake. Um, Fright Night was a 80s vampire film of some renown, and there was a, a character um, played by Roddy McDowell, Peter Vincent, who was sort of this TV personality similar, similar, similar to Elvira, who was popular back during that time, who would host you know, these shows. And so David Tennant is taking up this role, and the link we have in the show notes, you can see a picture that they've done, and it's sort of a really interesting reimagining of that role so i'm kind of excited to see this and i'm looking forward to this now did you ever see fright night kevin no uh, i'm afraid uh, both david Tennant and, and fright night um goes over my head um but um i don't know i saw the, i saw the picture and it looks uh interesting yeah, yeah. The, the original was, was was pretty fun uh, as films go it hasn't aged well i know that uh one of the podcasts i listened to um film sack they were uh, they were roasting this film a couple of weeks ago, and um, as I was listening to them play some of the clips from the movie, I was, you know, it was taking me back, but then I was realizing eh, it doesn't sound like I would like it as much if I watched it today as I did back in the 80s. Another bit of uh, Doctor Who-related news. Um, Sylvester McCoy, who was also, I don't remember which incarnation he was, but he was also an incarnation of Doctor Who, is rumored to be in talks to play a role in The Hobbit as a wizard. Now, he won't be playing the famous wizard Gandalf, but he'll be playing uh, one of the lesser character wizards, a character who's known as Radagast the Brown, who has a fairly minor role in The Hobbit, but it still would be interesting to see if he is able to secure that, and hopefully they'll be able to get The Hobbit production off the ground. Because uh, in this next story, that leads into our fourth story, um, the rumor is now that The Hobbit is leaving uh, New Zealand for greener pastures, or for, I should say, 
less unionized pastors. Apparently there's been a union breakdown um, or a breakdown in negotiations with the unions there, and they've decided <clears throat> it will be better and easier to just find another location, um, which I guess is not really good news for New Zealand since they got a lot of tourism and uh, they had a, quite a bit of uh, renown built up for all the filming that took place uh, with regard to Lord of the Rings. Um, I'm just hoping that they can finally get the film funded and get it done. It doesn't really matter to me where they film it. Um, yeah, my question is, how did then how did the three Lord of the Rings films get made in New Zealand without any problems? And somehow this new union problem suddenly popped up when it's, you know it's The Hobbit. Yeah, actually, I think I think it has something to do with those films. Like, I think there are people still waiting to be paid from the <clears throat> Lord of the Rings days. Yeah, <clears throat> it sounds like that there was definitely some kind of uh, contract negotiations in the article here itself. It says. Uh, the standoff revolves around movie bosses' refusal to sign a deal with local unions amid allegations of unfair treatment of performers and other organizations in America, Canada, and Britain have all backed the boycott. So apparently the producers on Lord of the Rings um, are not dealing fairly with the unions, I guess, so they've decided they'll go someplace where they don't have to deal with unions, possibly. Um so yeah, it's, it's it's sad that it, you know I, I'd like to see them continue to do things there. <laughs> All right, our last story for West Green this week, uh, one that sort of also popped up on the Twitterverse. Um, I don't know if it was today or or yesterday or when when I saw this, but Star Wars is going to get a 3D release in order, um, starting when did, when does it start? 2011 or 2012? Um, 2012, yeah. I think. 2012. And that's okay because it's a year that the world ends. And yeah, and it's going to be due to George Lucas. The um, <laughs> so they're going to be releasing these in 3D, um, in not in original release order, but in sequential order. So you'll get Phantom Menace, um, Attack of the Clones, and so forth and so on in order. Um, and a couple people have been twittering that they're not sure if if that's the ideal way to do it. I think, I think um, it was Sani who was saying, uh, Sani Lung was actually saying, this is yet another attempt at Lucas to simply milk a dead franchise. Um, I, but it's not dead. It is not dead. Well, it's not dead, but these films are dead. I mean, he released them, then he did, you know, he updated the effects and released them again. I mean, how many times do you, is 3D just an excuse to release these? I, I, I just don't see it. I mean, I 3D is not going to make me go out and watch these, um, especially when you've got Blu-rays coming out. I, I, I think yeah, next year is the is the release date for the Blu-rays. Um, mm -hmm. The whole it, set. Yeah, it just seems yeah. it just seems like a, a, a weak kind of attention grab to slap 3D on these, and and they're not going to look that great in 3D. Um, and the, the but the interesting thing is, um, you know, somebody was pointing out that if you watch them in order, then the big reveal in in uh, five in Empire is ruined, obviously. But the the greater issue is that I think if you watch them in this order, it'll actually show George Lucas getting better as a filmmaker, right? <laughs> so he's like Benjamin Button. <laughs> <laughs> he's like the Benjamin Button of filmmakers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, of course, with all these complaints, uh, we we'll probably still go watch it. Yeah. Well, actually, that that's my point. 
for all the people who are really bitching and moaning, you know, I'm only going to give that credit to the people who actually don't see it. Yeah, there's, because, there's no way, unless, even if I got free tickets, I think I'd give them away. I mean, I don't mind watching Star Wars at home now, but I'm not going to be paying uh, 3D movie price tickets to go and watch these films in a cinema again. I just, I, I'm just not. I mean, I'm, I'm still very interested in the franchise. I love the Clone Wars TV series. Um, I, there's supposedly a live action series, television series in development. I don't know if that's gotten canned or not. You know, I'd be happy to see that. But, you know, I just think doing theatrical releases of these just because you can show them in 3D, it's just wrong. Let's just see if he can make money on it. It's that simple. He's, he's, he's already done it, like, you know, so many times. You know, why not? He wants to tinker with it forever. But clearly, the market is there for it. And, you know, people will go. Let's, let's not pretend they won't. Um, yeah, but I mean, uh, is, you know, is this going to start a trend? I mean, what's next? E.T. in 3D and, you know, but see, the thing is, Jaws I don't think E.T. would ever work in 3D. And, you know, they could try it if it becomes cheaper, sure. But I don't think you're going to get theatrical releases of these things. Because, you know, they showed Jaws. Trust me, no one would go. I mean, well, some people would go, but you're not going to pull in like a 30 million open weekend. Uh, E.T., forget it. You know, it, it's loved, but no one's going to go. But Star Wars gets them out time and time again. It's just crazy what you can do with Star Wars. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Right, for all the people who bitch and moan about Star Wars now, it's shocking, but they're still making everything. It's adults who are buying it, it's adults who are going. And, you know, adults will drag their kids. Yeah. It just ends up happening, you know, and, and it's. I'm waiting for the day when they invent the technology where George Lucas can superimpose his own image on every one of the characters, you know, and then re-release that in the theaters. I'll watch that. Actually, you know, George... I think Jim Cameron will do that first. Jim Cameron will develop that, <laughs> and the first thing right. you'll see is him in Leo's part in Titanic. One day he'll be Ripley, and, uh, you know. <laughs> I'd pay and to see that. Um, it's It's... Yeah, actually, you know, I don't even know if I won't go. I might go out of curiosity. I Seriously, curious. you would you would sit through Phantom Menace again in 3D? You know, I might. Okay, just I'll, to I'll, <laughs> I'll never sit through Phantom Menace again. <laughs> in whatever I, format, yeah, even the Blu-ray, I'd see it close to it. Hmm? I'm sorry, even when the Phantom Menace that. comes out in Blu-ray, I'll use it as a coaster. <laughs> <laughs> It's got some of the best lines ever. Like Liam Neeson. Always big, there's always a bigger fish. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> Amazing work. <laughs> no one remembers that line? Usually everywhere I go. Uh, no, it's... it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I have to admit, uh, uh, I'm curious. I don't know if I'll go. You know, maybe I'll just give up and not care when it happens. But, you know, right now I'm, 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 I'm curious. You know, I, I really am a part of the Star Wars generation, so... Speaking of Star Wars, have, did you see the uh, short animated film um, that was part of the competition that won, and it was done by a film school, and it was all it was all it was all about the Han Solo and Chewie incident that got Jabba to hire bounty hunters after him. Is it a short film? Yeah, have you seen it? No, I I'll have to send you the link. It. It's actually really good. It's a, it's a short little CG film. And it basically tells the story. It's the you know it's their interpretation. They did it for the competition that was being judged by Lucas, and they ended up winning. And it, and it's really kind of well done. It's 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 kind of neat. It's like it's got like a claymation look to it, but it's CGI. And it, it's the story of the smuggling run they were on 
that they ended up having to dump the stuff and that got Java ticked off at them. Um, and it's it's a short, it's a little like eight minute thing, I think. I'll have to dig it up and they'll dig up the link and I'll send it to you. it's time to move on to our West Screen film for this week, and that is the latest installment in the Resident Evil series, or if you live in Asia, the Biohazard series, um, called Resident Evil Afterlife. So, what can we say about this story? Um, it basically picks up exactly where the last film, the third film, uh, which was... What was the third film? It wasn't um, Extinction. Extinction? Was that the yeah. f- was it extinction? Yeah, that's a desert movie. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's where they're in Vegas. Um, basically, at the end of that film, uh, the main character of the series, Alice, who is a superhuman carrier of this thing called the T virus, um, she infiltrated the Umbrella Organization, the creators of the T virus. The T virus is this virus that spreads and turns people into zombies. So the world is in ruin, except for Japan. Uh, which is okay uh, by the end of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, J- 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 Japan. Mm-hmm. yeah, Japan's fine Ex- un- until the end of uh, uh, Extinction and the beginning of Afterlife. Um, and so this film picks up exactly where Extinction leaves off with her going to uh, attack the Umbrella headquarters and to try and find the, the chairman of Umbrella, a guy named Wesker. All of these characters, with the exception of Alice, um, should be familiar to most people who've played the uh, Biohazard or Resident Evil games. Um, you've got character, new, a couple new characters here, Chris Redfield, um, his sister Claire, played by the girl from Heroes, um, Ali Larder, I believe her name is, uh, is back for this film. Uh, and it's just more zombie killing and a lot of slow motion in this film. I think that the you know the amount of film they used to do all the slow motion must have been massive. Uh, lots of 3D effects here. Uh, unfortunately, in Hong Kong, you had only one theater to go to if you didn't want to watch this in 3D. It's kind of a slick way for theaters to gouge us with a massive price increase is by only offering it in 3D and not having the option to see it in 2D, except at some very remote theater. Kind of made me mad, but I did want to see the film. Um, I think this is the, the first film that uh, Paul Anderson has directed since the original. I think he directed yes. the original, and he's produced the others, and he's back directing uh, at the helm directing this one. I have to say I really enjoyed this film. It's not a great film. It is what it is. You know, It's a zombie film. It's basically the main character, Alice, going around looking for survivors and trying to track down Umbrella and killing zombies. And that's about it. You've got the same formula going on here that you have in any kind of zombie film. You've got people ultimately holed up in some place. 
you know, some kind of uh, somewhat secure building, and that place ultimately becomes unsecure, and they have to fight for their lives. You've got uh, several characters who are cast-off characters. You're never really given too much to care about them because they quickly become zombie food. And the rest of it is basically Alice running around, as I said, in slow motion, um, fighting and zombie killing. Um, not much else to say about it other than that. I really like the soundtrack. Soundtrack's great. A lot better than the movie itself. Um, <laughs> but do we even care about these movies anymore? Uh, this is this is something, I guess it's a guilty pleasure of mine because I like the Resident Evil series. I, did, I, I haven't really liked the films. I didn't like the first film. I hated the second film. I don't really remember the last film except the fact that it was in the desert. Um, and yet you've seen them all. Yeah, but I because I like <laughs> I like the games, you know, and I, I think one of the reasons I didn't like the films was because they became so divergent from the games. But I ultimately ended up really liking this one because it does pay a little bit of homage back to the games, in particular the last game, Resident Evil 5. Um, there's, uh, there's a little bit of homage paid in, in, in a fight scene with the, the main villain, Wesker, and a couple of the supporting characters, uh, Claire and, uh, Claire and Chris Redfield. Chris is being played here by, uh, uh what's the actor's name? Prison Break Guy. Prison Break Guy, yeah, I did. <laughs> that's, that was what, that's, that was what Gia told me. That's why she wanted to see it, because Prison Break Guy was in it. And, you know, she liked Prison Break, and I was like, who's that? That's, that's uh, Michael Schofield, Prison Break. I was like, huh? Um, and he was in prison again here, so it's not a big stretch. Um, but, yeah, he takes up the role of, of Chris Redfield. Um, Likeable enough, I think, and it's not really the same character. And I figured out by the end of this movie, if I view this series as sort of an alternate universe, because it it's no it's nothing like really... The Resident Evil universe. It's not that the, the characters here. Are, there is there is no Alice, in you know that we're given here in the Resident Evil games. So if, if I really start looking at it through that kind of lens, I just can kind of sit back and it's mindless zombie killing fun. And I ended up enjoying it. I, I again I like this one a lot more than any of the other sequels so far. Um, the my main beef is I didn't really want to see it in 3D, but I had no choice. I you. you if you're out there and you have the option, you don't need to pay the extra money to see this in 3D. The 3D effects are kind of negligible. There's a lot of stuff, you know, kind of coming out at the camera. There's a couple, you know, shots where she's like blowing off a zombie's head and the the bullets are kind of flying throughout at you. But it's, it's not really necessary, um, especially for the inflated price you're paying. But if you're somebody who just really enjoys 3D, I mean, go for it. Um, the... The thing that I think is one of the staples of this series, and I and I hate to spoil it, but uh, how can I say this without spoiling? It's not over, people. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. What, you know, the, the, it's the, never over. This is it's, yeah. It's this is not a. This, like, is, yeah. this is there. There is no conclusion here. Um, there was no conclusion in the last one. So if you saw the last one and you see this one, you're kind of in for more of the same. But that's been the sort of the the staple of this series um, since the second sequel. So, um, not a whole lot to expect. Better visuals in some cases, some pretty decent action in places, and a whole lot of CGI. A lot more than in the previous films, I think. 
Kevin, what did you what do you think? You you a big fan of the games? Um, I played the first game uh, a long time ago, and uh, I remember not liking the first film very much. Um, one of my main gripes of the whole film was that how how far it 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 diverted, how far it kind of strays from the original. I mean, I remember the, the original game was all in the woods, you know, in the wooden house and in the dark, and actually really scary because these things are not because they're jumping out at you, because they're slowly coming, and you know, there's yeah, you know, the, the fear doesn't come from you know things popping out of nowhere. I know that's the typical horror thing, but you know. Um, it totally strayed away from the game, and I only seen I only saw the first two, and never and I never went back. Um, so this is the first time I I've watched an of Resident Evil movie since the the the, the first film. Um, and as far as I've read, it seems like you know at least the second and third film takes the franchise to new visual, you know, new place that offers new visuals. You know, you got the first film that's mostly in the basement, second film's out in the city, the third film's in the desert, and then the fourth film. You know, it just kind of goes nowhere. Um, you've got that, you know, this really cool opening sequence uh, in a Tokyo base, and then and then it kind of goes back to its, um, you know, that that isolated location. You know, zombies coming in and have to kill them all, and um, and you know, it's it's, it's obviously a franchise that is running out of fuel. Um, it's obvious that the creativity, creative, creatively, they have nowhere, they have nowhere else to go. You know, and of course. You know, and this even with the with the with the whole franchise considered, even for a franchise like this, it feels like it's running out of fuel. Um, as far I know, I know that you don't like the 3D, and I've always been a proponent. I've always been against you know uh, shoving 3D down people's throats. But uh, unlike the case of uh, films like uh, Clash of the Titans and uh, Last Airbender, this film was actually shot. Uh, with the uh, James Cameron's 3D system, and in that case, it's interesting to see what they do with the 3D when the film is shot in 3D. And, that's, uh, and there's obviously some pretty cool, effect, like the stuff uh, about the the things flying at the screen. It's it's very conscious. The whole film is very conscious about its 3D style. It's also almost too much so, where they 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 concentrate too much on you know finding chances to have things pop out of the screen. And it kind of distracts, and you, you've got that slow motion. There was at least two slow motion sequences involving rain uh, or, or spraying water, and it's just kind of too obvious. And um, and it works to a point visually, but yeah, it doesn't really enhance the film itself. Um, and uh, it doesn't really either. It doesn't really enhance the little bit of story that it has. Um, for me, the, the the zombies are boring now. You know, uh, this time they have little octopus mouths. And uh, have you played all the games, Paul? The Resident Evil games? Uh, no. In fact, I've played. Uh, I think I've played three, four, and five. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. But I I've know read. I've mean. read the stories of the. Uh, I I tried to go back and play the original games, and I just couldn't do it. Um, mm. You know, it's it's one of those things when gaming technology advances so far and you go back and try and play a really older game you just don't have the patience for it um <laughs> so yeah well, but i've read yeah, the stories I... and and i know the you know background of the, the game characters and whatnot and that got me so is the, 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 the octopus games. mouth uh zombie is that from the new games well that's i i yeah it's kind of from some stuff that they did a little bit in four but Four is mm-hmm. four. The the zombies in four are actually this this like alien thing, um, mm-hmm. 
called Las Plagas, if I remember correctly. Um, it's not from the the T virus, so I don't know. It's it's like a hybrid so, kind of a thing. So they're from Mexico? No, they were in. Uh, they were like in some <laughs> European Spanish country. Yeah. 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 It sounded like migrant migrant zombies. Yeah. Yeah. That are cheaper from Mexico, so <laughs> import them up north. Um, uh, well, okay. And what about the gimp? The gimp giant. Giant yeah, that is that, that is that is directly taken from uh, Resident Evil Five. It's one of the the bigger ogre style monsters that you end up fighting in Resident Evil Five. And yeah, it's like things like that. When I when I start to sit down and I make the mistake of trying to apply any kind of conscious logic to this series, I I just I have to stop or I start hating myself. <laughs> actually going and watching it and enjoying it because yeah you look at something like that and it's like it makes no sense at all you know in the game you're just you're playing the game you're shooting zombies and here comes this big thing you know and you're just too frantic trying to press the buttons and kill it and figure out how to kill it but in the movie you look at something like this and going why is there a massive corporation making things like this and what does this have to do with the zombie and why? Who? Who actually built that big axe? You know, yeah. <laughs> you've got this and, and, big. You know, the whole and it's yeah. repetitive. The way they keep trying to kill it, it's yeah. like it must be Hellboy. Remember the the the, the thing with the squid monster yeah, and the yeah. whole movie just spent killing this thing that can't be killed and just kind of repetitive. And there's no thrill in it. You know they, that the thing is moving yeah, slow that, enough. That, I think that that monster yeah. monster was, you know, it just it it just comes from out of nowhere. It doesn't make any sense, and that's really a complete fan service for the the people who played the game, basically. Mm. So yeah, that's that's kind of my point. Um, zombies are boring, um, but the opening, you know, where where what's her name, Mila Jovovich, is is pulling off a, a Matrix thing, you know, that that was cool, you know. Why don't we kill more people that have guns and you know less zombies, CGI zombies that would just you know have have octopus mouths and you know give me more action. I like the action. I think that 3D works best that way. The the zombie thing didn't really work with 3D. The action worked best. You know, give give me more action. I like the action. You know, I don't care it's minus. I like the action in Resident Evil. So give me more of those. If you're gonna go straight away from the original games, then straight as far as you can and make something on your own, and that's you know making action films. Well, I think that's going to wrap things up for our show this week. I'd like to say thanks to Ross Chen for joining us and sharing his thoughts on uh, The Legend of the Fist with us. And I'm sorry they were not more coherent. <laughs> they were fine. <laughs> um, if you'd like to keep up with what Ross is doing and some of his reviews, you can find him over at his website, uh, www.lovehongkongfilm.com. And people can follow you on tw Twitter as well. Is that correct, Ross? Uh, yes. And uh, for anyone who actually does read the website, I apologize because it seems like I will never update it again at this rate. Uh, <laughs> it will happen one day. Um, and yes, I'm on Twitter where I usually appear and say nothing of real interest. Well, you can also follow Mr. Ma over at uh, his website and his blog. And you can catch up with some of his reviews. Do you have any current reviews going up, Kevin? Um, I'm still waiting for, uh, the boss to upload, uh, my review of Frozen. Um, also a few, um, other reviews waiting for me to write. Uh, I think I might have some free time this week. So, um, 
it will either be Shanghai, which we already talked about on the show, or um, Confessions, or Sirena Itzka. Um, either way, I'm hoping to yeah write another Pan Asian film soon. Yeah. All right. Other than that, you can uh, follow me on uh, my Twitter at the Golden Rock. Um, that's one word, the Golden Rock. Or you can uh, read some of my stuff on YesAsia.com. Uh, I am under the the name uh, Rockman in the uh, Yamcha section of the site. Um, and also a little bit of reminder. Um, sorry, Paul. Uh, this the Hong Kong Asian Inter- uh, Hong Kong Asian Film Festival uh, schedule is coming up this weekend. Tickets go on sale on Saturday the 2nd. So if you're in Hong Kong, don't miss it. Uh, there's plenty of great stuff this year. Um, we can talk more about this uh, next week's show. Yeah, that sounds good. As always, you can find us and our updates over on our website at www.concast.com. Um, you can pick us up on iTunes. Um, we'd love to have feedback if you have some time and can leave us some positive feedback. That really will help us out over there and get us some more notice. And we'll be back next time to talk about... Uh, what are we going to talk about? Andy. Andy's got a new film coming out. Uh, Inspector D. So we're look, really looking forward to that. I'm very excited. I'm hoping it's going to be good. Detective D. Detective D, yeah. Um, Inspector D is... Yeah, uh, I was thinking <laughs> initial D with, uh, with a cop twist. And, <laughs> Inspector D is, uh, I don't know, like Inspector Gadget meets Vampire Hunter D or something. I don't know. J-Chow. <laughs> um, so Inspector D, yes. And uh, I'm, I'm excited. I'm hoping that Soy Hark uh, will have a return to form. So we'll be talking about that next week. And as always, until then, we will wish you good viewing, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. I don't want to make this thing longer, so I won't say goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you just did. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay, you can cut that part too. Good to go. Let's bake this puppy. Alright. Say bake this puppy. <laughs> yeah, that's the new saying. I just made it up. <laughs> I'm Chinese, but I'm not that Chinese. <laughs> You're more Chinese than I am. Oh don't get me started. There was this one time when I was in mainland China. Whew. That's a story for another day. Mm, yeah. Uh, I'm kind of surprised. I don't know. But It Man 2, I think, deserves a word of its own. They should open a special Oscar category for angry acting. And Mr. <laughs> I, Twister I, I would, think if they, uh, would take it away. Uh, I think if they if they submitted It Man 2, uh, the, the committee might ban Hong Kong from the, from the whole race altogether. <laughs> forever. They're little golden statues. <laughs> These Americans... They have these tradition. You know, he, apparently he's things. on. Uh, apparently he's on Twitter. Yes, sir. Mister Darren Shalavi is yeah. on Twitter. Yes. So, uh, uh, I'm wondering if uh, I'm wondering if uh, he's picked up on <laughs> on Kozo's Twitter range. <laughs> Probably not. But I mean, I'm just <laughs> you know because those things I'll don't go away if you don't delete them. So <laughs> they're still there. I'll tell you what, though, he he does he, he does follow Kozo. Oh, he does. He is following. Oh. He is not following me, but he is following Kozo. <laughs> so he's very careful now. <laughs>
Like, you know, mm-hmm. Nicholas Say, everyone loves him in that film because he's just such a simple guy. And he just, you know, he's like all heart, basically. Right? Mm-hmm. And, in, and, in, and in this movie, Donnie was all butt. Yeah. Well, <laughs> speaking of which, you know, I, I, maybe I'll get to it afterwards. Um, but, you know, that ass scene that they talked about for years, totally disappointing. I felt like one cheek. But anyway... <laughs> And it was it was, a, it was at such a distance. I, I wasn't sure if it was a if it was a body double or not. I think it was a CGI ass. <laughs> CGI. That's where the money. Went. No, but you know you're gonna have to cut a lot of this. I'll, I'll just tell you that right now. <laughs> a whole lot. A whole lot. No, we're like this is like the laziest podcast I've ever been a part of. <laughs> just, you're calmly throwing out these these things. Yeah. It's gonna be a it's gonna be fun editing. I'm sorry. That's fine. By the way, you should really when you first started talking to me, I was not in the mood then, so you might as well cut that whole section. Because <laughs> I was just like getting warmed up. I'm really sorry. I was just like, uh, that's all right. Because it was a hard time with the internet being off, and it was like a lot of stress going on over here. So yeah, just please cut that whole section. <laughs> I just was not in the mood. So okay. there, that's like five minutes you can get rid of. <laughs> No, I was gonna say I think the bigger story is that God hates the Hobbit. Yeah, because apparently he just doesn't want it to be made. Yeah, somebody I don't know if it's God or <laughs> J.R.R. Tolkien from the grave or, um, but yeah, the film has been beset the by Japanese. a lot of problems. The Japanese, the Japanese. <laughs> Japanese don't want Hobbit to be made. Yeah. Or maybe it's like the um, Little People of America Union because they were using CGI CGI technology to cast the hobbits instead of yes. casting little people guys actors. who are really five foot five tall <laughs> making them into little people <laughs> why can't they just hire people good point yeah um, Vern Troyer needs the work last I heard <laughs> and Mr. Twister's following you we were talking about that earlier oh really yeah, yeah it really ruins my whole shtick on, on Twitter <laughs> I no longer have a point on Twitter. I, I lost interest because I can no longer make fun of someone because they're following me on Twitter. <laughs> Just think of what happened if Donnie Yen and Wang Jing and like you know Ekin Cheng started following Cheng, me yeah. on Twitter. It'd be the end of the world. No, anyway, please cut this part also. Okay. <laughs> I will leave it in just for you. Um. 